Hey, duties, what's going on? You know, we're uh, Saturday, May 20th, a, a rare weekend where you and I did not have anything on the calendar. You didn't have any gigs. Um, we didn't have any plans with friends. Like, literally nothing going on. So we can just uh, hang out and shoot the breeze. Yeah, so we like to call these burn the news. We've, we've, you know, we do a few of them every now and again, and just for a chance for Eric and I to get together and kind of provide a color commentary on what's going on in Clown World and or the simulation, whatever you want to call it. And there's never there never seems to be a shortage of material. So, a couple of the big things going on in the political world, um, really, right you know, right now this weekend. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard and RFK Jr. Uh, spoke at the Bitcoin conference, and I watched Bobby's speech. But did you did you watch Tulsi's? Is that available, or what what happened with that? Yeah, no, her uh, talk is you can find it. It's all over Twitter. Um, and yeah, I mean, she hammered a lot of the same points that Kennedy did. That you know, <laughs> if they get complete control over the financial system, and um, they can switch off your your line of money and, and how you process your money and you get paid for stuff, then they have complete control over you. And Bobby made the point that he kind of really got more hip to crypto and Bitcoin when the Canadian truckers had their protests up there in Ottawa, when they were protesting that high tech soy medical tyranny that was going on up there in Canada with uh, little Justine Trudeau, the little yoga instructor, the little indigo child, Castro child, Yoga instructor. Shutting what is it, Justine? Down. Justine Castro. What's the nickname they got for him? Yeah, Justine Castro. I mean, if you look at that, Eric, he looks just like a little baby Castro. Folks, we got the documents. We have retinal scans. We got fingertips. We got uh, you know uh, fingerprints. We, we it all lines up, folks. He's Castro boy. He is really soy though, Castro dude. Yeah, Trudeau sucks. Yeah. And this so is uh, so, so Bobby was kind of saying that. This is, a Heineken, this is a Heineken Zero, by the way. I'm, I'm on my uh, six months of uh, Thomas Merton, Catholic worker, where I don't don't booze. But to be in the spirit with Mike, Mike's uh, Mike's been Mike. You've been sponsored by Michelob. Talk about that. I've kind of had a, a Michelob. Uh, um, I, don't, I don't I don't know if I want to call it revolution, but a couple of my buddies, you know, we're we're thirty six years. It's, it's a we're thirty six year old men, you know, kind of pushing towards forty. And, um, you know, the Olympic drinking days are, are pretty much behind us. And, um, you know, two of them separately told me within a couple weeks span that uh, they've been in the Michelob these days. And, you know, would I be interested, basically? It's almost like, hey, can we, here's a copy of Watchtower. Can we tell you about Yehovah, you know? <laughs> here's, here's the latest, uh, you know, who, who, who are the door-to-doors? It's Jehovah's uh, Witnesses. Yeah, the Joseph Smith people, right? Oh, the, no, those, are the, those are the Mormons. Those are the Mormons, yeah. Yeah. We used, to, we used to get more of the Jehovah Witness when we lived in Ringe. Now in Peterborough, it's all Mormon all the time, baby. Yeah, we kind of came buddies with them, those little, little guys. You know, they're adorable. Uh, they're like, oh, can we tell you about Jesus? I'm like, oh, can I tell you about the World Trade Center on 9-11? You know? Oh, my God. Can I tell you about the hijackers and their connections to Saudi intelligence since they're being shielded by the CIA and the FBI in oh, we'll California? Can I tell you about that? Let's get to some of our peeps who are here. IB Denmark, great to see you. So anyways, yeah, I'm drinking this Heineken Zero. I'm sponsored by them, Infowars.com, HeinekenZero.com, zero gravity, zero flavor, zero carb, zero alcohol, zero problems. Zero weight, zero water, uh, zero alcohol. But I'm sober till July 1st, and then 
after July 1st, I'm going to let it rip. So good All to see you. Off. Good to see Fire Pixie. We got our update. Patreon, we're still growing that. We're pushing towards 40 monthly patrons. If you haven't done it yet, that's really the best way to support us. If you like what we do, you want to see us keep going, and we're going to talk about the RFK interview, give some behind the scenes on that. For 4K quality, I mean, it's one of the best interviews we've done, Mike. But patreon.com slash jackmanradio, $10 a month. It would help us a big league and gratuity. You like what we do, you want to request an impression or tips, Go on to Venmo, and Mike's Venmo name, we'll get it up here. Mike Jackman, 1986. And then my Venmo ID is Senator Jackman, 86. And, uh, you know, if you want to throw us a few bucks or request something, that's the place to do it. IB Denmark says, RFK Junior, 2024. And he says, hi, Pooks. Hello. Hey, our auntie, our dear um, auntie, who supported us from day one. Yeah. So, where were we? I don't know. I got sidetracked there, man. We were we were, uh, we were uh, oh, talking Bitcoin. about. Uh, I thought we were talking about what kind of piece Hunter used. Oh no, yeah, you were talking about the Bitcoin conference. Um, Bobby, man, he gave a great 12, 13 minute speech, kind of talking about his evolution and how oh. he's. That's what it was. I was saying. So the Canadian truckers is what he mm. saw what they did, the Canadian truckers up there in Ottawa, how they were just protesting the grotesque, uh, disgusting, draconian vax cuck laws and um, shut down the bank accounts in any way to send money and support to them via GoFundMe or any of those payment processors. So complete, obviously a complete tyrannical overreach um, of the government and, and being able to meddle with these guys' accounts and everything. So... He sees crypto and Bitcoin as a way around that in a way of, of uh, really opening up exchange and how we exchange money and services as human beings in America, not only in America, but around the world. So he sees he's he's seeing the you know, he's seeing the uh, writing on the wall at that. And I know Tulsi's been into crypto for a little while um, during the campaign in 2020. She talked about I think she either owned some sort of crypto. I don't know specifically which kind. I'll have to ask her about it next time I see her. Um, but she's always been pretty hip to crypto. So both of their speeches were really well received down there. And you watched yeah, Bobby's, really, you said? I, I did I did get to watch all of Bobby's. And, um, you know, he got a great response. But he was also honest with them. I like that he goes into these organizations or these groups or these conferences who would extend him an invite. And they're going to find common ground on some things, but they may even disagree on a couple of things. But he will at least illuminate why he would disagree, but also that he's willing to meet with experts and he's willing to talk to people who know what they're talking about um, with respect to Bitcoin, um, you know, or something like that. Because, you know, honestly, I don't really I don't know a ton about Bitcoin. Um, I know you and I have a couple of uh, close friends who are start who are into it, have been into it for a while, um, who are starting to get into it. And, you know, of course, people have been successful with it. Some people call it a scam. Um, but a lot of people feel that because it's decentralized, it can't be tampered with as much. And there can be more accountability, you know, with it, you know, going out. So, I mean, I would, I mean, just point to our, our own uh, Federal Reserve and our money system. I mean, that's like a wheelbarrow full of monopoly money when you think about it. They just keep printing it. They've never printed more than they ever did. Uh, between 2020 and 2020, early 2022, in the history of our entire country. So, 
and look what's happened with inflation. Look how expensive things are. So, you know, Bitcoin could be a new emerging, you know, thing globally um, as an alternative. So I don't know. Again, you know, monetary policy, crypto, it's not my strong suit. I, I will profess I have not done a ton of deep diving into that. Um, but uh, it's it, I mean, I don't think it's going anywhere. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, well, we know enough about the Federal Reserve and the creature from Jekyll Island uh, about how the Shanghaiing of our monetary system and how they took it down the direction of a banking cartel running the whole thing starting in 1913 when they passed that Federal Reserve Act there, um, you know, essentially when everyone was away for Christmas. And um, that was, you know, got they got that going with the robber barons and, and uh, the you know, banksters and all those other dudes in high finance in uh, the corporate world. So we've had a cartel that hijacked our monetary system for 110 years now. Um, so I think what crypto does is, of course, it's just a belief system. All money is, is, is an agreed upon belief system in a means of exchange, measuring work, measuring effort, measuring time. So when I have a $20 bill with Old Hickory on it, Andrew Jackson, who was, he fought the banksters, folks, by the way, go to infowars.com slash Old Hickory to get some information on that. Um, that That's all money is. It's just agreeing. It's, it's an agreement between two parties that this rep represents um, exchange. So the more people that are trading in a different currency or a different mode of exchange, um, the more popular and well-known and proliferated it's going to become. So I, I'm excited to see where it goes. And then, you know, for the sake of my friends who own uh, Bitcoin or have a couple of coins, and I know one of our friends just purchased, I think he said he bought a coin and a half. So for his sake, um, I'm going to be watching closely and I'm, I'm excited to see how that does for him and, you know, for everybody. Um, but it, it is really exciting to see these national figures and obviously Kennedy with his campaign being willing to go there and at least talk to them and, and listen and learn more about it. And like you said, Mike, I, I'm, I'm with you too, man. I don't, I'm not, you know, as well versed on crypto and, and, and the way that works as some people are, but I'm certainly willing to learn more about it and, and I'm interested in it and to see where it goes. Well, we saw how the Bitcoin and crypto activists were treated in Keene, New Hampshire. Uh, they had the Bitcoin embassy and they of course got raided by the feds and, strong-armed and, you know, got the book thrown at them in a lot of ways. So obviously it's a threat to the system. And I really feel uh, RFK Jr. is a threat to the system. Um, you know, of course, he comes from the Kennedy family, which are a, uh, you know, known quantity in American politics. They've been around for a long time. Uh, but anybody who's really studied the family, even going back to Joseph Kennedy, JFK's father, uh, knows that they've quarreled with the intelligence apparatus and the war machine in our country. And uh, they've often been called traitors to their class. Of course, they're very, super wealthy. You know, no, they don't, uh, nobody tries to hide that or, or, or make any bones about that. But what RFK Jr. has been saying in just under the month or just about the month since he announced in Boston that he was going to be running for president um, as a Democrat you know, no other candidate has, has really said in our lifetime. I mean, you know, we're 36 years old. I've never seen a candidate run and say these type of things, maybe other than Ron Paul and Dennis Kucinich. Um, and, and, you know, to, to some extent, Tulsi Gabbard, of course. We supported Tulsi last time. 
Um, but since 2004, I've never been about which party it is or, or what, whether it's left or right or blue or red. It's which candidate is truly the most anti-war? Who has that record? Who's telling the truth about the big picture issues like surveillance, how whistleblowers are treated, our monetary policy, our foreign policy, um, you know, just kind of how the media talks about big issues. And right now it's RFK Jr. Uh, I mean, I've, you know, personally been an admirer of his for many years. Uh, we started the podcast in 2015 and back when we started it, he was one of the first people I really wanted to talk to and do a podcast with. And, um, yeah, it's, it's crazy. We, we had him on and we got to spend, we got to spend a couple hours with him really. Uh, we got to hang out with him at a hotel in Manchester, New Hampshire, uh, the next morning after he announced he was running. So he announced in Boston that he's running for president. And then the next day, uh, early in the morning, we got to see him and hang out with him. Of course, our podcast was just over an hour, but there's, you know, there's behind the scenes stuff. And that was, that was really cool. I mean, you know, he really just strikes me as a regular guy. He understands the vantage point that he has, and the place in history is very unique. And I don't think that's lost on him. And he's very upfront and honest about his own struggles. He struggled with addiction for many years. Um, I mean, he lost his uncle and his father to gun violence, and he's honest and open about that, too. Uh, he said in a recent interview, you know, when asked about guns, because that's obviously a very important uh area for libertarians, New Hampshire people and, and two way people, all, you know, all across the country. And it's, it's a, uh, I don't know. I forget what the phrase was that he used. If it was a, well, it's a personal, it's a personal subject for him. So, and anybody who's been touched by gun violence, but he also said, I also believe in the second amendment and I believe in the, in the constitution. So I'm sure he'll be elaborating on that, you know, um, as time goes on, but he's really, what, what struck me, Eric was, you know, he's an open book. I mean, he, he sat down with you and I, and then nobody, he never said it. Nobody from the campaign said nothing's off limits. You guys can't ask him anything. You can't talk to him about this subject. You know, there was none of that. And I think it's such a refreshing um, posture that we just haven't seen, the accessibility. I don't think you're going to see any of the candidates be like that, whether it's Ron DeSantis or I think Trump's opening up a little bit more to retail. I mean, he went to the, uh, he likes to go to, I think it's the Red Hour Diner up in Manchester. He did a big rally in Manchester, New Hampshire a couple weeks ago, and he did show up at the Red Arrow Diner. I mean, I think the owners are MAGA. I think they're, you know, they're for the king, but you're not going to see another credible presidential candidate who's, you know, now above 20 points and he hasn't even done any big events yet. This is the first month in. So, uh, He's very accessible and he's willing. I mean, you saw the interview he did with uh, uh, Crystal Ball there and uh, Sager. And uh, in my opinion, it was really cringe when she went full, you know, I'm just going to say flu world order on him, uh, basically parroting MSNBC, CNN, uh, mainstream talking points. And he was very patient with her. And, uh, you know, I think, man, he keeps doing that, dude. He just goes up in the polls. Yeah, absolutely. He he really was. Uh, I got that too, man. He is an open book and there wasn't any kind of micromanaging or gatekeeping or, I mean, you know, really one of the ways this interview came to happen um, is we went and saw him in March, early March. He was up here in New Hampshire and we met him, got in touch with a couple of people on his staff. And then I wrote a piece about it for our sub stack, um, RFK Jr. for president, you know, is, is he running? 
and um, that got picked up by the Ron Paul Institute. Daniel McAdams, the director of the Ron Paul Institute, uh, bless you, Daniel. You're you're a great great guy, a warrior for liberty and truth. Um, asked me if the Ron Paul Institute could republish my Substack piece, and I said, "Oh my God, please! That would be awesome." Um, so that was a really cool moment to have that happened. Uh, have that happen. So then um, that made the rounds and I sent it to some of Bobby's people and they sent it to Bobby and he really liked it. And then from that Ron Paul Institute piece, I got booked on OAN because I've been talking to one of their producers, Monica Rodriguez, who booked me on because she heard about me after the Rage Against the War Machine uh, march and rally that I went and did in February, which was epic. So epic. Um, So... OAN booked me. I did that media hit. Basically just did a 15-minute talk with Monica about a possible RFK Jr. campaign for president, which I think, Mike, both of us, it kind of took both of us by surprise that he was so serious about running. And then all of a sudden, our buddy calls us and says, hey, man, you want you guys want to go meet RFK Jr.? He's coming to New Hampshire. He's thinking about running for president. I mean, up until that point, man, I, I didn't even really see him on the horizon, like running for president. So that was that was really exciting. So I did the OAN hit. That went really well. That made the rounds. Um, I heard, you know, from a couple of his people, he really enjoyed it. And he, and uh, I said, well, do you think Mr. Kennedy would be interested in doing our podcast? And uh, he said, yeah, I'll I'll. I'll he well from yeah he said yes he would be interested and then he gave me his info you know and i emailed my pitch it got to bobby and he said yeah book these guys and in my email signature was my cell phone number and not really you know i don't really think twice about that <laughs> and then flash forward like a couple of weeks mike when you and i went and met mike pence we're driving which was that was an awesome night shout out to tempestas in Keene, new hampshire they're a great american family they love america they're patriots they make great food and they, them and the beautiful Cheshire. people, beautiful people. My band Northern Stone plays there on New Year's, and we have a blast. <laughs> they hosted Mike Pence, and, and Mike and I went and had dinner and took a picture with him and got a book signed by him. That was an interesting event. Uh, so we're driving on the way home, and we're on 101 coming back from Keene, and we're getting into like Dublin, Peterborough, where we live. And my phone rings with a number I don't recognize, and you answer it, Mike, because I'm driving. I don't look at my phone when I'm driving and uh, you got it. And it turned out to be Bobby Kennedy calling on, calling me on my phone. And uh, once I figured out who it was, you know, I safely pulled off to the side of the road and took the call and he was just like, Hey, um, I would love to do your podcast. I'm all in. Um, Let's set it up with my scheduler. Uh, We got an email thread going and uh, I'm really looking forward to it. So that was that was quick. It was like under a minute phone call, but it was it was like a surreal moment for me. It was like, holy shit, RFK Jr. just called me and uh, he's going to do our podcast. So like you said, Mike, going back to 2015, when we started this thing, um, Bobby was was a dream get. He was someone we always aspired to talk to and want to have a conversation with and you know, ask questions that we knew he was thinking about, things we knew that he was thinking about and interested in, you know, obviously relating to his uncle and his father's death and politics in the national security state writ large, but had never really talked about in like a real public forum where it was just where he was really accessible and you could ask him the questions about it. 
And the fact that we finally got to do that eight years later after doing it just shows me, man, we've come such a long way and, and, and that we really, we've, we've hung in there with the show. And, and if you stick, if you stick with something you believe in and you work hard, man, you can achieve anything. Yeah, definitely stick to your guns. And we really have, you know, we've, uh, it's always been a passion project. And um, it, after doing 150 plus episodes, I just feel more comfortable with, you know, who I am and what I believe in and what we're all about on this show. And, you know, uh, sitting there with uh, RFK Jr. Um, in that conference room there doing the show, I was just, yeah, it, it just felt like a really, you know, at the beginning it started off a little, um, we had to warm up a little bit, but man, once it got going, uh, I really, I agree, man. I think it's one of our best interviews. I'm super proud of it. And we really couldn't have done that without the support of our listeners and our viewers. So I, I just want to thank everybody here um, who has supported us during during this ride the last eight years. You know, we love you guys. There's no Jackman Radio without you guys. That includes Aaron LaFond, our first producer, Jeff Cornell, our videographer, our dear friend, uh, you know, who's done photography and created, um, uh, you know, art for us and, and our new logo. He's done logos for us. He shot all of our videos for our Politics and Pint series during the 2020 election cycle. You know, we did that with uh, Tulsi Gabbard, Marion Williamson, uh, you know, Governor Mark Sanford, uh, Andrew Yang, Stephen Kinzer. We did a bunch of really high quality, really great interviews. And I, I would love to see the view count on those go up because we talked about a lot of stuff in those interviews that's still relevant, you know, including the Epstein case, uh, you know, Watergate, you know, impeachment, all that stuff. We talked to Bill Weld for 45 minutes, you know. You could tell he really wanted to have a beer, but he didn't. You know, Mary Williamson wanted to have a glass of wine, but she didn't. I think there was two people who actually had a beer with us. It was uh, Stephen Kinzer, who wrote uh, Poisoner-in-Chief about Dr. Sidney Gottlieb, which is a fantastic book. And uh, I think Governor Sanford had a beer with us because he had officially ended his campaign that day, so he just didn't give a fuck anymore, I think. Sestak, too. Oh, Sestak, Joe Sestak. He was that was a fun interview. Sestak was great, um, but we've had a lot of fun doing this, you know, and we're we're uh, keeping it going. And um, yeah, I, I just think the message here is you got to be true to yourself, man. You got to be true to what you believe in. You're going to have detractors along the way. You're going to have people who call you names, but you're also going to have you're going to realize who your friends are. You're going to realize who really supports what you do and cares and sees the value and sees um, what keeps you going and you know, for me, in a lot of ways, with the Kennedy stuff, it, I stand on the backs of so many researchers and so many seekers of truth over the last 60 years. You know, that's like the first wave in the first generation it includes Mark Lane, it includes Harold Weisberg, um, you know, it includes Josiah uh, Thompson. So many great authors and researchers, many of them have passed, most of them have passed away, and they're not here now to see where we are in 2023. Uh, Jim DiEugenio, who's still with us, who wrote the amazing script and screenplay for, JF, uh, for uh, JFK, um, I think it's called JFK Revisited, well, Through the Looking Glass, Oliver Stone's recent documentaries. Um, Lisa Peace, who we've had on the program, who wrote, in my opinion, the definitive book on the RFK assassination. And RFK Jr., he, he sees all this and he knows all this. I mean, he's... Think about it. If your father and your uncle were killed in, in mysterious circumstances, wouldn't you want to know? Wouldn't you want to look into it? And I think RFK Jr. is a resounding yes, an answer to that. So 
I really think he's awakening a sleeping giant in this country that's not just disaffected liberals and Democrats and real progressives who are disenchanted and upset about Bernie, but real Republicans and conservatives and people who are so disgusted with the way our country's been going the last 20, 40 years that they're actually willing to look at a candidacy of RFK Jr. and look past the stuff they don't agree with, because there's always going to be stuff that we don't agree with. We're not going to agree on everything, but the big ticket, big picture items, man, there's no better candidate running and no one out there telling the truth more like Bobby. So that's, that's kind of where that's. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's exciting seeing him going on mainstream media and all these great, these podcasts, you know, Russell Brand, um, Aubrey, Marcus, you know, just doing the circuit. Uh, he's, you know, he did the uh, breaking points um, and I'm sure he'll do Rogan and Patrick Beth David. I'm sure he'll do those guys show shows um, and just speaking truthfully about it, about the assassinations and about the national security state um, and about the fact that these corporations and moneyed interests have, have taken complete control of our government, complete control merger of corporate with government, which is textbook fascism, as we said and talked also, about. Also, too, too, Eric, I think American people are tired of being lied to. We're tired of being treated like children. Yeah, yeah, we're just exactly, exactly. We're, they lie about everything, and they do treat us like children. And as he said in his um, introduction, his uh, campaign launch speech, I've been censored. I've been, they've tried to shut me up for the last 15 or 18 years, and uh, I have a lot that I have to say. So... Um, I'm real excited about it. I'm glad he brought Dennis Kucinich on board and Dennis is, go is the campaign manager. The campaign just announced that a couple of days ago. So we've known Dennis since 2006, roughly. So we've known him 17, 16, 17 years. Um, he was one of, he's one of the greatest anti-war voices to ever hold power in the corridors of Washington. Um, so that's a good sign. And he knows, he, Dennis knows the game. He ran two national campaigns for president in 04 and 08. So it's going to be good to have him on board steering the ship. And I think you just, and I said this to Bobby, you know, in our interview, you're going to, you're going to see a swath of people from all across the board in America, uh, get behind him and offer their talents, their network, their skills and their energy and their support to, um, get behind really, in, in my opinion, this once in a lifetime kind of candidacy and campaign, you know? Yeah, definitely. You know, Bobby's the first to admit he's one man, you know. Um, give me a sword, I need an army was one of the first tweets after he announced. And he needs the people. He needs the American people behind him, you know. And I want, I want to see, like, a ripple effect and an avalanche of American people who, who are so – I mean, just the last three years, just everything they, they did and tried to do in the last three years, if that hasn't opened people's eyes to what's going on and to what the real end game is here, I don't know what will. And he wants everybody across across the divide. And he speaks so eloquently, and he's not condescending to anybody. And I think it's really refreshing to see that. And I think a lot of people are responding to that. So uh, one meeting that Bobby's not at, of course, is the Bilderberg, which is uh, happening this weekend. And we always like to try and talk about it, you know, when it happens uh, every year. Uh, usually the independent media doesn't find out where it's going to be until the day before or the day of. And... Um, I think this year it's uh, – God, I forget where it is. Maybe one of our viewers will be able to – hey, he's grabbing another Heineken Zero. We're having fun. We're having fun tonight. We're celebrating the uh, the victories and, you know, the good and the light. 
because uh, there is a, there's still a lot. There's a lot in this world, um, regardless of how horrible you know things are, in the war machine and and the censorship. And I think humanity's ready to overcome that. I think you're, we're seeing something um, where people are going to rise up and say enough's enough. And it's got to be regular people all across the board. And we have to stop worrying about the petty differences that divide us or that they want to divide us. The powers that be wants to be divided. They want us bickering about nonsense. And, you know, I think the stakes are, are too high right now uh, to be giving into that and, and to be continuing to buy into that paradigm. And I, I think a lot of people are seeing that. So it's, it's, uh, it's encouraging to see that, you know, when you've been doing this for, you know, 20 plus years, you tend to get a little, uh, curmudgeon and you get a little crusty and you get a little uh, disenchanted and uh, cynical. Um, but I, don't, I, I think, you know, we should always have hope. You can never give up on hope and, um, you know, how good every, everything could be, not just for America, but for the whole world, really. And I think the principal way that we do that is we stop the wars and we stop accepting permanent war and nonstop war. And that's why, you know, RFK Jr. made that a, a huge plank in the platform. And is this epic two-hour speech. I recommend everybody go watch that speech that he gave in Boston where he really eloquently lays it out and he talks about our, our just acceptance of non-stop never-ending war. And I really think, you know, in my lifetime since the Iraq war, uh, that's what's destroyed. That's one of the things that's destroyed our country. It's destroyed our resolve is our addiction to never-ending war and our acceptance of it um, in our culture, in our foreign policy and, you know, in, in people in it being in the consciousness of, of uh, day to day, you know, it's just not something you really hear. Um, but the media is going to be forced to acknowledge that. And even in that clip from Mika Brzezinski, the daughter is big new and uh, morning Joe there. And that, that guest they had on there, that DNC shill, I forget it. Was it Nina Simone? I forget who it was that they had on there. Uh, just trying to laugh at Bobby. And they even said, well, remember when we laughed at Trump in 2015 and he entered the race and said he couldn't win. Well, you're going to see the same. I think you're going to see the same thing happen. So, um, but then in other ways, uh, another candidate who's going to be running or announcing is uh, DeSantis. We got this guy. We got this guy, Eric. What's what's the story on DeSantis? What does Trump think about him, and what's the deal? We got Meatball Ron. Meatball Ron. This guy's very low energy. He was unknown. No one knew who he was. He was at uh, one, maybe two, maybe three percent in the polls. Maybe two, the way he says two, Mike. And uh, he he came with me. He came to me with tears in his eyes. And he said, sir, I need you to endorse me. So I had him write something up. I said, okay, write something up and I'll look at it. I'll see if I like it. He gave it to me. I didn't like it. I changed it. And then I announced. And then I endorsed. And after I endorsed, he shot up like a rocket. And he ended up winning. Yeah, Meatball Ron is going to announce his campaign for the Republican primary uh, in the next, I don't know, week or so. So I think in, uh, we're getting close to uh, a Meatball Ron announcement. It's, it's imminent. He's been up here in New Hampshire a couple times. And by all accounts, the dude is just a stiff. Like, he just is socially awkward. Uh, he doesn't like retail politics. He doesn't like meeting people. Um well, maybe not that he doesn't like it, but he's just he's just awkward from what I've heard from people who know him and, and have met him um, and worked with him. Um, and, you know, he was in Congress for a few years and other members of Congress who wanted to be on speak on condition of uh, anonymity said a lot of the times Meatball would just put his earplugs in 
and, um, you know, go, go about the hill, go about his day and not really engage with anybody. So I think that's kind of a big hurdle to overcome. If you're going to be running for president, you're going to be meeting a lot of people and you're running to, for an office where you're going to be representing, you know, 330 million Americans. So you gotta, you gotta learn to uh, deal with the public and meeting people and being accessible. And um, I know his, his wife, Casey does a lot of that. She's really kind of like his top advisor and, you know, she's, she's been uh, doing them every step of the way. And, you know, they got married in Disneyland. It's so funny that they're fighting Disney the way they are and they got married there before all these woke wars. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, if I get a chance to talk to Meatball, I want to talk about the torture that went on at Guantanamo Bay while he was there. Um, I want to talk about the force feeding. Um, I want to ask him why he felt the need to go to Israel to sign some bill um, for the state of Florida. So there's a lot of questions about Meatball. He, he's basically, Mike, you've said this before, he's just watered down Bush Light, Neocon, PNAC, uh, Bush Light, Warmonger. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. He's he he, uh, he did go to Iowa and supposedly because of a hurricane or something that was going to happen, they were like, "Oh, he ate Trump's lunch because he showed up because Trump canceled the rally where there was like a hurricane warning or something like that." And DeSantis showed up and stood on a, a table and just said a bunch of nice things, but he's not even he's just not really saying much in reality. So I don't know. I think he's going to be another Governor Walker. Remember. Uh, what was it Scott Walker? Where was he from? Wisconsin? Yeah, he's a Wisconsin governor. And there was a lot of hype about him. Uh, a lot of wind in his sails, you know, had a lot of had establishment donors behind him. I think a few billionaires. And then he got in the race and he ended up just being a dud. Of course, the King Mike took took all the air out of the room. Yeah, and he's still doing that. I mean, remember after the midterms, everybody's like oh, Trump's done, he's finished, you know, we're writing this political obituary, and it's like, every time you count him out, he ends up, I go up in the polls, it's kind of unbelievable. I said John McCain wasn't a war hero, I went up on maybe another couple, maybe one, two, three points. I talked about the war, I went up five points, you know, I talked about Lindsey Graham and Jeb and farting in their face, I went up ten points. So I think uh, to write the king off, you know, people do that at their own peril. Uh, so he's a force in politics, unlike anything we've ever seen. But, you know, he's got his record. He's got the four years he was in there to run on. And, um, you know, now he's trying to play catch up with the JFK file. So I'm going to release all of them. It's like, well, dude, you were in there for four years. You had a chance to release all of them. What the hell happened? Judge Napolitano said he had a, a, a discussion with Trump about that. And he said, look, Judge, I said, Jet, sir, if you saw what I saw, you wouldn't want to release him either. So. What could it be if it's just Lee Harvey Oswald? What could it be 60 years later that he saw that uh, so disturbed him to not release the files? You know, it was Mike Pompeo. Did Mike Pompeo send some nudes? Did he put some nudes in the files that they didn't want to see? Who knows? So I think it's good that Trump doesn't have uh, his daughter and son-in-law, the Kushners there. That was bad. I mean, that was just... They enriched themselves. They made, you know, Kushner made the huge deal with Saudi Arabia on his way out. Real close. Uh, you know, was in with Netanyahu. I mean, you know, can we, can we talk now, Jared, about how the fact that we were bunkmates when they would come to America? I mean, remember that press conference that Trump did with Netanyahu? Yeah. He's like, he's like, maybe, BB, maybe he's up on the settlement, Sue. He didn't like that. 
So when the king was dovish or tried to make something good on foreign policy, he got he got sidestepped every step of the way. Whether it was Netanyahu, whether it was his own Pentagon military apparatus. So and you know, I think RFK Jr. sees that. He understands the stuff Trump said about foreign policy was good, but the actual reality, uh, you know, kind of hard to do. So it's going to be interesting, man. I, I would love to see RFK Jr. versus Trump in the general. I don't know. I'd love to see that. What, what do you think? Yeah, that would be awesome. Well, of course, a lot of people are like, oh, they should team up. And we even asked Bobby about it. And he was kind of he wasn't really like giving us much on that. Um and then he had so much he got and I heard this from so many MAGA people and so many people texting me like they got to team up. Them. I'm like, dude, it's not happening. He's running. He's running the Democratic primary. I, I know what you're going to say about that. They're going to rig it. They're not going to let him debate all this stuff. But look, this is like a really unique thing that's happening. But that's that's all a fair criticism, though, Eric. That, that's actually a fair uh, concern that I mean, Kim Iverson, when she had RFK Jr. on mentioned all that to him, that she was worried about that. Obviously, what happened to Bernie the last two times, doesn't that bear that out? Of course. Yeah, no, it is all all fair um, to worry about that and, and have those questions. Um, and I think what really will be the tell is if we go through this Democratic primary and obviously Bobby, he's going to do better than expect. I mean, I think he could I, I think he could win the nomination. I do. I really do think once he gets going, man, and he's holding rallies. And look, I understand in 16, the the, the Republican primary did not have superdelegates like the Democrats do, and they have a somewhat of a different primary and a process. But it's, he, this thing is going to be impossible to ignore, and, and they're only going to be able to downplay it so much in the media. And he starts getting people coming to his rallies uh, and building excitement and, and hitting, the, hitting uh, you know, interviews and just being everywhere and building an army that he's going to really make them force their hand. And if they, they, they screw him, you know, which a lot of people think will happen. And it, it's what Bobby does then that will show us where the sink could go. Um, because they know that he could take a sizable amount of the electorate with him and go independent. And obviously that is good for Donald Trump and the Republicans. Um, so I think RFK Jr. has some serious uh, chips to leverage here in this primary. And then that's, that's one of the reasons why I say, don't count him out here. Uh, he's, he's, a, he's a smart dude. He, he knows the system. He's been a Democrat dude. He's, he's from, he's from one, arguably one of the most famous political uh, families to ever exist in the world, not just in America, but in the whole world, the history of the world and politics. So it's, it's going to be quite a ride, man. It's going to be a ride and we'll, we'll see how it goes, but I'm, I'm really thrilled to, to, to just just that he's in the race and saying what he's saying and, and building up this coalition that we're going to see. Yeah, I am, too. It's uh, it really mixes it up. And like you were saying earlier, man, we were surprised that he's even running. But he's, he's you know, seen what's going on for a long time and uh, he's thrown his hat in the ring. And uh, one of the great things that he says, you know, whether you're religious or not, he says it's in God's hands. You know, if the American people want the truth, I'll be in the White House. So I think it, it might just be bold enough to work. Look, I might just have to run and beat them for a third time, okay? You know, the MAGA thing is like, it's like the carnival that you're kind of familiar with. And it's, it's uh, you know, comforting for a lot of people. It's entertaining. It's it's familiar. But, you know, he, he's also kind of like a politician now in a lot of ways, man. Because when he wasn't there, he kept things going, Um 
you know, for the empire in a lot of ways. You know, there were coup d'etats in Venezuela and other places and uh, lots of bombs dropped and, you know, lots of uh, very similar things uh, that happened. And I feel like in a lot of ways, RFK Jr. is going further than what the, you know, what the MAGA movement has promised and has didn't deliver, didn't deliver on. But, you know, but there's also a lot of people who are interested in seeing um, what could happen with the Trump second term. What do you think a Trump second term looks like, Eric? Well, he would be, he wouldn't have to worry about having to run again. There wouldn't be uh, seeking another term over his, hanging over his head and all the whole thing. So I think he would be uncaged and un unleashed in a lot of ways. And he might really be able to let it rip and, and, and do some, some epic things. But, you know, we, we only, we have the 48 months, Mike, that he was king. And we have that to go on in, in what he did. You have the money he took from Sheldon Adelson and the money he took to get Bobby off the advisory board during the transition. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. What did Bobby say? Like the king took a million dollars from Pfizer or something? Like a million bucks. Yeah. And I think that, uh, Pfizer is one of the people who are being represented at Bilderberg as we speak. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, you want to, yeah, you want to talk to Bill about Bilderberg, but we're going to be talking a lot about the Kennedy campaign uh, going forward. Obviously, here in New Hampshire, we're going to be seeing him, um, and I've been in touch with him, and he said he really enjoyed doing our show and he wants to do more of them. So stay tuned, folks. Um, I'm very hopeful that we, that will be the first of many conversations with Mr. Kennedy, and of course, uh, any other candidates that want to sit down with us and have a have a chat. Um, I went and met Vivek Ramaswamy. I thought he was uh, interesting. He's a guy; he's only a year older than us. He's based. Oh, he's yeah, he's based. You know, he's the tip of the spear in the culture war. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll have more people on and hopefully more conversations with Bobby. Yeah, so tell us about Bilderberg, Mike. They're meeting over in Lisbon, Spain, this time. Is that where it is? Okay, yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, we still go to our day jobs too, folks. So I, I try to put as much time as I can during the week into research and, um, you know, putting stuff together and accurate information. So, Eric, hopefully that's that's correct. Uh, they're in Lisbon, but I did read that uh, the honorable Nobel Peace Prizing, no Nobel Peace Prize winning, Doctor Henry Kissinger is there this year. 100 years old. I'm pretty sure he just turned 100. I don't know if you guys saw the interview he did on uh, 60 Minutes where he's like, well, you know, I think uh, the young people don't understand that we had to bomb Laos and we had to do the cigarette bombing campaign. They don't get it. it was a Dude, he's, it, evil never dies, truly. But Kissinger's there. Kissinger's slamming around. He's that Bilderberg slamming around. You know who's licking up the slime? Stacey Abrams. Stacey Abrams is there too, by the way, everybody. And everybody who thinks that she's like something great or something different, she is the twice lost loser of the gubernatorial effort down in Georgia. Okay. It's Georgia, right, Eric? That's where she ran for governor. Yep. Um, yeah, she sucks. And this is her second stint at Bilderberg. She was there uh, in 2019 before the flu world order broke out. And we reported it on Jackman Radio. She was uh, she was on this like nice cruise. She was on like a boat with Jared Kushner and Mike Pompeo, and you know they were having a good time. And she's over there again. So they, I think she's part of the Bilderberg Steering Committee now, if uh, what I've read is correct about that. So she's over there. I'd like to see one of her constituents ask her about that, you know, and see what the deal is with that. So she's there. Kissinger's there. Uh, interest for Palantir are there. Interest for Pfizer, um, 
Neil Ferguson, uh, who's a Scottish journalist writer, I think he's Scottish, who actually wrote a very interesting piece about Trump for 2024, which I told you about, Eric, um, where he makes the, he makes the case that he not only believes that Trump will get the nomination uh, for the Republican Party, but will be president again, elected, and could very well come back. Um, but Ferguson, uh, Neil Ferguson is also pushing AI. AI is the top of the bill at Bilderberg this year, man. They're really talking about AI. Um, and I haven't, I just, the, the AI stuff, I don't get into it. I don't, I don't look at it. I don't, I don't mess with it. I had a flip phone up until four years ago. So I'm not really the, I mean, you see my kitchen and my setup here. I'm not the most tech savvy person. I've always had a distrust of it. Um, I mean, I saw Terminator as a young man. The saw what Cyberdyne systems just kind of could do to fuck with everybody so royally. So <laughs> I don't know. What do you think about the whole AI, th the meme? The, the AI is now in the news, Eric, and they're talking about it. Ad yeah, the AI psyop, man. It's just hideous. It's, uh, oh, God. It's, it's it's seeking to take over every aspect of our lives. You know, you talk about this, Mike, get the app on your phone. Just download the app. There's an app for that. Get the app, you know, and it's Well, like, they have an app that can tell how many times you've been boosted. The app says how many times you've been boosted. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the fusion of uh, medical tyranny with uh, tech. I mean, they, whew, boy, they shot a big shot with the flu world order over the last three years with it, man. The cult of track tracing, Mike. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, they couldn't. They couldn't fucking do it quick enough. You know, I'm just. I'm just getting it for so my uh, pets. I know where my. I got my pets checked. I want to know where my pets are. It's like, well, I want to know where my kids are, and now I, I want work to know where I am at all the times. Yeah, exactly. I don't need a card. I can just swipe my wrist. Yeah. That's Bilderberg, man. They 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 leak this stuff into the media. They do predictive programming with television shows, media reports, movies. They meet about it. You know, we're not invited. I mean, you know, we're not invited to it. Where's where's I, my invite? I want to be able to go there and podcast with them from like the bathroom. You know. Yeah, they better have a removable shower head. <laughs> Talk about funny man, Eric, and that and the, the Washington yeah. Post. Well, let me finish. Let me finish with AI. Basically, man, they just they want AI. They're pushing it. Um, and it's uh, it's scary. I mean, it's moving us away from the natural and and where we come from and how, how we are as human beings. Man, we're we're flesh and blood, and we have a soul, and we have energy and vibrations, and oh, there's so much pressure to conform um, to it and to to just let it invade more and more of your life and then take over more aspects of your life. And uh, but if you have nothing to hide, then why, why shouldn't you? It's like, well, if the pharmaceutical companies have nothing to hide, then why don't they release their shit? Yeah, there's a reason. Jesse Ventura says there's a reason we got the Fourth Amendment and we got to use it because if we don't use it, we're going to lose it. Believe it. Um, yeah. And, you know, I was talking to, uh, you know, Mommy Megan about this, Mike, the other day when we were walking here in the park, which, which is so beautiful. I have a really nice park. Uh, behind my place here and a couple times a week my friend Megan and I uh, just take a nice walk and we're out in nature there's a nice waterfall you know and, and uh, it, it's just we're, we're continuously at a rapid rate and so many people are, are, aren't even aware of it because of how fast it's moving being pushed more and more away from just nature and the essence of what it means to be a human being 
in, in life and wildlife and in our connection to the world and everything. And there has to be pushback and there is pushback against it. Um, but they, like I said, they really shot a big shot with the flu world order and merging the surveillance state with health, with monitoring who's doing what, who's traveling where, who was there, you know, how long were they there for? What were your movements? And, you know, it was, it was insane, Mike, for, for people like us watching it play out the way we did, it was, it was horrifying, but it like, wasn't all that surprising because they've just been moving in that direction for so long. So we have to keep speaking out about it and we have to keep living our lives in a way where tomorrow we would be okay if all of that tech bullshit went away and we could just revert back, you know, a return to innocence, Mike, like Enigma sings about a return to ourselves, a return to innocence. Um, so I just, I, I try to, to interface with it as little as possible. And, and, and I try to, you know, I try to build a wall between myself and the tech. Okay. Baron, he's good with the tech, the bingo, bingo, bunga, the emails. My son, Baron, he's a genius. He's seven feet tall. He speaks 29 languages. He's a world-class crypto hacker. Um, but, uh, I want, I want us to not lose sight of our humanity. So to people, uh, hey, Adam Fitz, all right. Adam, I love I love you. I love Adam. Can I just say this right now? I love Adam Fitzgerald. If Adam Fitzgerald was running the primary right now, I'd vote for him. I'd vote for him right now, folks. 100%, Adam, I love you. One of the planet's best 9-11 researchers, hands down. Sorry, I just want to. Not just one of the best researchers, but just one of the best guys I've, I've come to know. Um in doing this kind of stuff, but let's not lose sight of our humanity and let's not forget to get together with the people we love in person, not through a phone, not through a screen, be with them in the real world, hug them, spend time with them, you know, make plans. Yeah, One, one of the really sick, insidious, vile things that was done uh, since 2020 with the flu world order um, was dividing families and friends we saw that play out in real time, and that really broke my heart in a lot of ways um, to see people who have known me since I was born, you know, say things in my presence, uh, you know, that were very hurtful, um, you know, and not not arguing with them or trying to oppose them or trying to start, uh, you know, an argument or a ripple and just kind of sitting there in silence, you know. Like saying, oh, yeah, well, I'm not – I go to Florida every year, but I'm not going there on vacation this year because everybody in Florida doesn't want to get the – didn't want to get the shot. So they should they, – they all deserve to die. You know, just stuff – just little stuff. Not little, but just stuff like that. Just hearing something like that, disagreeing with it on, on a very basic level, but, but, you know, also wanting to keep the peace. So – the powers that be, you know, this is the media and the pharmaceutical companies and the government put a lot of people in a very tenuous position in a, ver a very, uh, God, a very hard spot, even within their own families. And I think now, even though you have, you know, President Biden and whoever uh, in the current government and the establishment, it's over. It's OK. It's OK. It's over in time for my reelection. I'm asking you now from the basement, you know, that they can say it's over. But, you know, everything that's happened in the last 36 months, that's not so easily forgotten. And for me, it's not about retribution. It's about going forward and understanding when they when, when something like this happens again and they try to use 
a disaster or a tragedy for their own benefit and their own gain and their own way to divide people that we don't fall for it again. And that, that's the thing that worries me. You know, that's the same thing with 9-11. I mean, we were teenagers when 9-11 happened, but there was after 9-11, there's terrorists around every corner. You got to get pat down at the airport. You got to, you know, take your shoes off. You got to be treated like cattle at the airport. So, and we've accepted that. I mean, you and I just, we flew in March and April and I don't fly a lot. You know, I really, I don't enjoy flying. I don't enjoy traveling. I live in New Hampshire. I really enjoy freedom. Um, but I have friends and family all over the country that I love very dearly. And I'm, and I'm more than willing to travel to be with them and see them and to, you know, to endure that, uh, that indignity and that uh, treatment. And they really do treat you like cattle. And I, I, and I would argue it doesn't really make us safer or, or, or it's not, not about safety. It's about control. It's about fear. Um, I don't know where I was going with that, but it's just, you know, that's just, you know, that's how I feel about it. And uh, it's what we've grown to accept in our country since 9-11. But we're not allowed to discuss or look at why 9-11 happened, what the real origins were of it. Uh, and when we talk about the fact that there, there were these hijackers in California that the CIA knew about from the Malaysian summit, uh, they came into our country and the CIA and the FBI were not communicating with each other. Uh, they weren't being told about that. It, you know, it, that's not acceptable. You know, that's not acceptable. And being told that we have this thing that's come from China, it's, it's, it's a gift from China because of that. We have to lock you down. We have to keep you in your house. You are a threat to your family, and there's people in your own family that actually believe you're a threat if you don't go along with the narrative. Dude, they did an amazing job at psyoping people with. It has. It's been. It was the ultimate psyop, and and I make this point too, Mike. A lot. Those people who were the loudest, virtual signaling, bootlicking, go along lemmings during the the, the flu world order are, are very very quiet now. You notice that? They don't have anything to say. They got nothing to say. They just kind of laugh and shrug when you maybe point out how well we were fighting for their were. we were fighting for their freedom during that time too. You know? Yeah. But it is the silence is deafening, as John Lennon says. And God, that's another thread we should pull. John Lennon, man. How about Dave Whelan, man? Wow, I look forward to having that guy on again. The Lennon quote is a conspiracy of silence speaks louder than words. Was a Lennon quote? Oh yeah, dude, Dave Wheeling, you booked him on, man. That was so. What'd you say? Yeah, you you booked uh, David Wheeling on the podcast. I think we had him on last week, and yeah, man, he's done some amazing research into the John Lennon assassination, and he has a book in a what a documentary coming out. Yeah. Yep, Dave Wheeling is uh, British. And uh, he, you know, has spent the last two, three years really digging into John Lennon's death. Um, so I don't, I don't want to like go too deeply into it here, but it's it opened my eyes to a lot, a lot of anomalies and stuff that I just did not, I was ignorant on, and I just did not know about Lennon's death um, because Dave made this point that there's just been this narrative out there in the forty, almost forty-three years since Lennon was killed in December of 1980 that has prevailed and just been like accepted dogma about what happened. Mark David Chapman was this nut Lennon obsessed beetle stalker showed up to Dakota, met him, 
got an autograph, and then Lennon went to the studio for a few hours, came back in the early or late at night, 11.30 or midnight, got out of his limo. Chapman was there waiting for him. He walked past him, and then Chapman shot him five times in the back. And Lennon, like, collapsed and died. And that's, like, basically more or less the official story we've had. But it's the reality of it and the medical evidence and the eyewitness evidence and the nurses who dealt with Lennon's body, who Dave Whelan talked to, paint a totally different picture than the bill of goods we've been sold about that. So we're going to be watching Dave, his research, and we're going to stay up on what he does. I'm going to stay in touch with him, and I will definitely have him on again. But, yeah, what a guest, Mike. Yeah, what he's talking about paints a whole entirely different picture. Uh, you know, and looking back on some of the literature that you read about Lennon's assassination, they say he was shot in the chest, you know, and so that's the front, you know, that's the clustered by the heart, you know, and the, and the vessels were basically so damaged uh, that it was beyond repair and, you know, uh, he died. So they're basically, you know, Wheeling is kind of saying it was more like a professional hit. You know, and I think he's got some more information that he's going to release uh, with his book and his documentary. And one of the books that we talked about pretty heavily during the interview was Fenton Bresler's 1989 book, Who Killed John Lennon, which I highly recommend everybody to read. Uh, there's a lot of interesting information and tidbits uh, in that book. And I, I do want to read that again. Um, but, you know, the thing with, with Lennon's assassination, and I've been a Beatles fan you know, since as long as I've been listening to popular music, you know, I got into music as like a third grader. Uh, my parents had Imagine and, uh, you know, a couple of Lennon solo records and a couple of Beatles records. And, uh, you know, I, I remember listening to those as like a, you know, eight, nine, 10 year old kid putting that on the, uh, on the record player. So th th those are my first memories of John Lennon, you know, hearing Imagine, hearing the song Love mind games, how he's always been my favorite Beatle. So one of the things we talked about with David Whelan was there's like a real emotional aspect to this, just like there is, with, I mean, with the Kennedy assassination or 9-11 or any of these events that happen. And I never really looked too deeply into John Lennon's shooting. I, I mean, I wanted to know about it and know what they say happened and what the official story was. And I, I you know, I felt like I knew that pretty well, but you know, some of the information he's dug up and points to is really just kind of casts a lot of doubt on, on all of that. And the fact that there really wasn't a thorough investigation done into that or really any investigation at all because the NYPD felt like they had their guy. It was an open and shut case and they didn't do any fingerprinting. They didn't really do any forensics. They wash up the blood the next day. You know, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. Lennon's cremated, you know, that's it. And every... Every year on the anniversary on December 8th, the platitudes are wheeled out, uh, just like everything, you know, just like Veterans Day, just like Memorial Day, Pearl Harbor, 9-11, just like all the things that we celebrate and honor and talk about in the public consciousness, but we, we're not, but for some reason, we don't really go deep into them. I think, I think we do a disservice to the dead by not going deep into them. And that's why, the, you know, the continued research and discourse into JFK's assassination, RFK, John Lennon, uh, the Iraq War, even Vietnam. I mean, my father is, was part of the right near the Vietnam generation, maybe a little bit too young, but certainly had friends who served in Vietnam. And uh, several of them came home uh, to the Boston neighborhood after and died of drug overdoses 
One of them died from Agent Orange poisoning that they got over there. And these are the things that we, we don't talk about, we're not allowed to talk about, but I really think we should talk about them so we can prevent them from happening again and, you know, kind of just be, uh, you know, upfront about, about what it really is, the, the kind of uh, furnace and meat grinder that, that it really is to keep the Empire going. So... Well, Giuliani cut taxes. I cut taxes. Oh, yeah, Rudy, oh, Rudy Giuliani. Yeah, oh, God, Giuliani. Yeah. We did want to talk about Giuliani tonight. Uh, we'll go through some of the comments, though, before Yeah, we go through that. some of the comments and questions. And, folks, let me remind you, patreon.com slash jackmanradio. Um, to our patrons who are watching and listening, we really appreciate your support. Uh, you know, five, ten bucks a month. Come on down. Come on down. We'll go down to the gun range. Uh, we'll bring Piers Morgan over here. I'll turn the studio set here into a boxing ring, and Piers Morgan can wear the Jolly Roger, and I'll uh, I'll wear the red, red, and blue. Um, let's see what we got here. So Fire Pixie said, "Hey Adam, I be Denmark. Hey Adam, Adam Fitzgerald is nine eleven solid. Yeah, he is." Yeah, and we were talking about the, um, you know, obviously the two hijackers that came over from California, they came in through the country over in California. Um, It's such a huge story um, (laughs) that the CIA knew who they were, they knew they were here, and there's there's so many uh, layers to that story, Um, and Adam has just done some of the best work on that and explaining that and breaking that down for people to understand. So go to Adam's podcast, The Darkened Hour. Um, his YouTube channel, subscribe to him, check out his stuff. I, I just, I can't uh, speak enough about how amazing his research is. And Adam says, hi, fire pixie, Denmark and exit. Uh, Adam, you're one of the people I look up to brother. Much love, sir. Absolutely. Indeed. All right. Let's see. That was interesting. Yeah, our interview with uh, Dave Whelan was was very interesting. Adam says the government for some time has basically served against the interests of the people and needs to be completely replaced by a system that will. Yeah, yeah, that would um, that would be something. Come up with a, with a whole new system or give the, the one we have a complete enema. I mean, yeah, I, I know pe- listeners of the show and even I oscillate between those <laughs> those two options and avenues. But, you know, a, a prag, you have to live in reality. And the reality is I, I just getting completely getting rid of the federal government. I, don't, I just don't see that happening. Um, so we have to kind of, in my view, work within the confines of what we have, which obviously sucks. Um, but it's one of the reasons I'm so excited about Bobby Kennedy, because he understands the system. Um, he understands the, the agencies, the bureaucracy, and I think could, could make some moves and bring in some really good people to right the ship there. So... Um, we'll have to see how that goes. Um, okay. Yeah. So, uh, Kissinger, no, uh, uh, Giuliani, Mike, talk to us about Giuliani. You had him on the, on the list. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of information out there about Giuliani. I mean, of course, about what kind of creep he is, uh, what kind of grifter, um, and you might have, I mean, John Kiriakou, who was in the CIA, went to jail, uh, for blowing the whistle on the, the waterboarding, you know, program torture, um, federal prison, you know, had children that it destroyed his, his marriage. It destroyed his life. I think he was in prison, federal prison for 
nearly three years, and he told us during one of our interviews that, uh, you know, he met with Giuliani about the pardon, how much that was going to cost, and this is when Trump was president. And uh, so, yeah, that, that's part of Giuliani's deal, but Giuliani became mayor after the World Trade Center bombing of 1993, and one of the big things was we have to upgrade the radios. We have to upgrade the radios for the first responders, and this includes the FDNY, the firefighters. Uh, we, need to digit, we need to digitize that, and, uh, you know, for whatever reason, feet were dragged on that. Um, I remember in 2007 talking to Jim Riches, whose son died in the World Trade Center on 9-11, and um, he had many grievances with Giuliani about this, and he was part of a group. And the group was heavily Democratic affiliated. I mean, we have to be upfront about that. But they had, um, I think they had genuine uh, grievances and complaints about Giuliani and about the way he was cast as a 9-11 hero. Um, of course, there's research about Giuliani's connection to Jerome Hauer through the um, uh, OEM, Operation of Emergency Management, which was on, I think, the 23rd floor of Building 7. And maybe Adam can, uh, you know, correct me on this or, or fact check that. But there's a lot of issues with Giuliani's overall 9-11 narrative. When he ran in 2008 for president as America's mayor, um, you know, these groups kind of dogged him at campaign events. And I've been in New Hampshire since 1997. So I saw them. I saw... Uh, a group affiliated with Sally Reaganhart. Uh, her son died on 9-11. Um, and I would just advise, you know, just Google all this. Google Sally Reaganhart. Google her interaction with the 9-11 Commission. Google Jim Riches. I don't, I don't remember all the details off the top of my head, but I, I met Jim Riches in person, and I said, well, certainly we will do what we can to stop Giuliani because, I mean, he is a ghoul. You know, he, he is connected to a lot of nefarious interests. And this was back in like 2000, you know, 2007, 2008. So now Giuliani's in the news uh, with this lawyer, Eric, and the lawyer is making some some charges again. Yeah, um, yeah, it's it's pretty grotesque. Basically, she was hired to be a consultant or assistant to him off the books, promised a million dollar a year salary. And it basically just got to the point where she became Giuliani's, uh, you know, service girl. And there's articles, uh, and she she filed, I think, a ten million dollar lawsuit against because him. she was supposed to be paid a million dollars, and they gave her like twelve grand or something like that. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. So I don't know the exact amount, but um, you know, she talks about basically kind of just immediate, almost immediately became a sexual relationship, and she just felt, you know, really. Uh, abused and used and uh you know she's just people can go and read about it but it's just really slimy really slimy stuff and um you know she would say he was drunk most days by noon a little in the afternoon just always drunk around the clock on the phone with trump um and so yeah people can go check that out it's uh it's, it's definitely it's definitely grotesque and uh karaoke was just on um Amy Goodman, what's her show called? Democracy Now. And um, some of the stuff in this talks about the influence peddling scheme and, and grift 
um, which is John said is an open secret down there in DC for pardons. Uh, pardon season typically rolls up, amps up when a um, president is leaving office. So depending on where they are, if they're an incumbent um, or if they're going to do another term or if they're one term, you know, pardons, pardons are, are up. And obviously John Karyaku, um wants to get a pardon so he can get his voting rights reinstated. He can own firearms again and he can recover a $700,000 pension that he has from his time in the CIA. He was in the CIA for like 13 years. Um, so through someone he knew, he got a meeting with Giuliani to, to try and get a pardon. They met at the Trump International in D.C. And the lawyer or the, the other person's like, we got to make sure we do this like early, like noon before it gets too late because Rudy's usually pretty primed. You know, he's usually a bottle or two deep, Mike. And um, the amount basically was $2 million. And I think part of this lawsuit or something about it has been revealed that Trump is in on it with Rudy, uh, $2 million to get a pardon, a million to Rudy, a million to Trump. Of course, I don't know if there's proof of this or I wouldn't be surprised, Mike. Look, I'm a businessman. You want to get the pardon? Okay, let's even just to talk, we need $2 million. I went to so many funerals. I lost so many friends on 9-11. And yet, I think, Eric, nobody saw him at a funeral. I don't know that anyone saw him at any funerals. I went to millions of funerals for people who died on 9-11, okay? The million million plus people who died at the World Trade Center. Um, so, yeah, John said that it, it, Amy Goodman interview with John Kiriakou kind of paints this in really well about the influence peddling and, and the grift that Rudy's part of, um, which is obviously not unique to Trump. It's all, it's all part of all presidents, and people want to get a pardon by any means necessary. But it just speaks to the larger picture of corruption and graft, which is the U.S. government. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Clinton, certainly Clinton with his pardons were, were controversial in some ways. But I want to kind of end on a high note. Uh, I want to just pay tribute to Jim Brown, uh, one of the greatest NFL uh, football you know football players of all time. And uh, I, I, you and I kind of knew him from uh, his appearance in Running Man and Mars Attacks. Remember, um, he had the Egyptian mm-hmm. thing in Mars Attacks, and he, he fought the. Uh, he fought. Remember that that scene where he fought the Martians? Yeah, that was I, good. I think he ultimately got overpowered by them, but he gave up a pretty good fight. And uh, so he was in that. He was in the movie The Dirty Dozen with Lee Marvin. Remember that movie growing up? Well, I mean, it came out, you know, probably twenty. We seeing it when we were kids, right? I remember watching it as a kid. So great movie, Lee Marvin. I mean, tremendous. Probably just bullshit propaganda. But anyways, uh, <laughs> he was also in it any given Sunday. Um, you know, before that, he was an ardent civil rights activist uh, in the 60s, and he stood with Muhammad Ali in 1967 when Ali said, I am, I'm refusing to enter the draft. And Jim Brown stood with him for that, and uh, I think he should be talked about and remembered for that. And, of course, you got the, the haters who were like, you know, he went to the White House when Trump and Kanye were there. I mean, that fucking two- or three-minute clip dude of him at the White House – where Kanye is wearing the MAGA hat. He's like, he's like my dad. You know, Kanye is talking about Trump as his dad. Jim Brown's there with the cane. I mean, dude, it's like, it's like dude, the Matrix is busted. Like, the dude's a legend, you know? So there's people who want to just write him off because of that one time you went to the White House. Dude, if I ever got invited to the White House, I don't care who the president is. I'm there. I'll be there. You know, there's a great story of Willie Nelson at the White House smoking grass. Elvis at the White House with Nixon. It's just one of those stories in a long line 
And I think Jim Brown and Kanye at the White House is part of that tradition. So we pay tribute to Jim Brown, who also posed full frontal nude for Playgirl in 1974, which I think he should be he should be lauded for. And uh, I didn't know yeah. that, Mike. <laughs> yeah, so there's some tidbits for you. Yeah, that'll be a Google image, you know, at some point. Wow. Well, a lot going on. Um, but yeah, I want to thank everyone for tuning in. Uh, these are a lot of fun to do. We'll be doing more of these, and we've got more interviews coming. i got a good interview next week with a gal. Um, well, we're going to keep it a surprise, but uh, really, uh, really interesting uh, guest that we have coming on. So if you haven't subscribed to this YouTube channel, give us a subscribe. You can listen to us on Podbean, Spotify, Apple and iTunes, Jackman Radio. We're on Twitter, at Jackman Radio, Instagram, Jackman Radio, and my account is Senator Jackman. Come on there, say hi to me. Tell me that you listen. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Tell me what you don't like, and I'll ignore that. Um, but yeah, thanks everyone for tuning in, and this was fun, Mike, and we'll definitely do another one of these soon. Absolutely. I love you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. We will see you next time.